I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Yo, what's good? It is, well, I don't know what day it is anymore. It's November 14th, 2017. Happy Tuesday, everybody. We've got a good show today. We got college basketball. We got some football. We got talking about a bunch of college football, so... Good show. Looking forward to it. On our way, here we go. We're going to start with Mike Krzyzewski on Saturday. Won his 1,000th career game as Duke head coach against Utah Valley University, 99-69. to I think Coach K has kind of been in the spotlight for so long, we kind of forget how good he really is. He's had consistent excellence, not only for himself, but for his program, He's been at Duke since the 1980-81 season. Think about how long that's been. That was like when Joe Montana was starting his run as the 49ers quarterback. That's how long he's been the head coach at a college basketball program. And in that in that time, he has a 787 record. He's won over three quarters of his games over the course of 35 seasons, which is just remarkable to think about. He's the longest tenured head coach at Duke by 21 years. And the second longest tenured head coach was Eddie Cameron, who is the namesake of Cameron Indoor Stadium. I can't imagine what Coach K is going to get after this, though it's kind of hard to spell. Krzyzewski, K-R-Z-Y-Z, wait, no, K-R-Z-Y-Z, W-Z-E-W-S-K-I. Wow, I can't even do it. It's remarkable how long he's been there and how consistent he's been. Plus, in 31 out of his 35 seasons at Duke, or 37, he's had a 700 record or better. And not only is that remarkable just from an objective standpoint, but he's in the ACC, which is a stat conference. You got Roy Williams running his North Carolina program. You got Jim Beheim running a Syracuse program. Rick Pitino, who ran the Louisville program. We'll talk more about him later. But in that conference, he's maintained a 7 out of 10 win record or better in most of his seasons, which is just remarkable on so many levels. And especially considering at college, you got players turning around so quick in the pros with teams that have been really great like the Spurs you have players you can build around like the twin towers of Robinson and Duncan and Tony Parker and Manny Ginobili and now Kawhi Leonard who's been there for a good amount of time in college you don't get that opportunity you have to go recruit new players and find the good players and he's been able to not only have been able to make his teams good but to keep that new talent running in plus He's done all of this without scandal, which honestly I think is the most remarkable part of what he's done. Because even the greatest coaches in college basketball face scandals. Jim Beheim's Syracuse team had 108 victories removed from its record for unfair benefits, academic misconduct, and also um, the lack of enforcement of Syracuse's drug policy. All three things that you would expect to see, honestly, in a college program but Duke hasn't just ha- hasn't had those. Even if they're not squeaky, squeaky clean, that's the appearance that they've given off. And we haven't seen Shashevsky removed from his job or any real radical change at Duke since he's been there. Plus, Rick Pitino, another legendary coach, also was part of the most recent corruption charges in college basketball. And the fact that Duke was left out of those, along with some other major programs, is also remarkable. I don't know if it's just because they're good at covering up their tracks or just because they're clean programs and they've made themselves, they've built themselves on being clean and that's what draws a lot of recruits there. And also this builds on the fact that despite 
the dislike of their program, their clean reputation, and what they've been able to do, it generates respect from others. For example, the I Hate Christian Leitner 30 for 30, Phenomenal 30 for 30, it's about how even though you might not like who we have, because we, we play basketball well, and for whatever reason, you're still going to respect us because we win the right way, and we win. So that's something that you want in all aspects of life, in sports, and that's what Coach K has been able to do over his illustrious career of 1,000 and 2,000 more. Hey, he's only 70. Who knows what could happen next? Next up, we have Richard Sherman out for the year. On Thursday, this is really unfortunate, Richard Sherman ruptured his Achilles tendon during a tackle, which means that he is out for a year. Typical recovery for an Achilles to actually start moving again is 10 to 12 weeks. And as far as football, full football activities, full football games, it's not going to be for another five or six months, which really sucks for him. And it's also terrible for the Seahawks. Despite no longer being in first place in the league like they used to be, the Seahawks defense is still one of the best teams in the league, and for good reason. You see all the talent that they have and the scheme that they have and the consistency with Pete Carroll. It's, it's something that has really been sought by, by the rest of the league and has really been something that's gained respect from the rest of the league. And it allows their offense to struggle and still get wins, like on Thursday Night Football when Sherman got injured, and we're going to talk more about that later. The offense didn't do particularly well, but just Sherman's abilities and what he does to the defense allows the offense to still be, have opportunities to come through in the clutch. And as far as the rest of the team football-wise, he actually does make everyone else better on the defense. I know it's kind of a cliche, but it's really true, and here's why. I mean, emotionally, he's clearly the emotional leader, like Draymond Green is to the Warriors, of that team. You see him pumping up people on the sidelines, you see the emotion that he shows. And he's also the backbone of their defense, the Legion of Boom, of course, like I said, being one of the most consistent, strongest defense for a long period of time, something you don't see often in the NFL, and Sherman is one of the core players that this team, this defense was built around and continues to be built around. Also schematically, because no one wants to throw Richard Sherman's way, so he can take out a wide receiver, a top wide receiver on most teams, and that's something you don't get in football. It's kind of a luxury that you take for granted because it's like, hey, I'm going to take away their number one receiver. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead and play your game. And also, this allows other cornerbacks to be more aggressive, like the guy on the other side, like Shaquille Griffin, who's the cornerback now, because they know the ball is their ball is coming to them. So they can, and they have safety help because Sherman's going to lock down his guy. So they 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 know they have help over the top, and they can be more aggressive. They can make faster plays on the ball, and that really helps your team as a whole. Without Richard Sherman. It's kind of more of a traditional defense where you have to have the safety kind of linger in the back and have to play two back, and you have to have the corners uh, kind of up front on their guys. And it's you might have trouble with giving up big plays as a result of that because you don't have Sherman on one side just locking down one whole side of the field like he can do when he's in the game. And as far as a bigger thought, Thursday night football... And I mean, it's kind of polarizing. No, it's not really polarizing. I mean, everyone kind of hates it. Because you saw in this game, particularly, injuries. The Seahawks injuries. You got running back C.J. Procise, left tackle, newly acquired Dwayne Brown, defensive end flank Frank Clark has been a big part of their defense, and others. That wasn't even it. And also for the Cardinals, left tackle D.J. Humphreys, safety Tyvon Branch, and others. Thursday night football, especially if you've got a four-day turnaround for a team where Thursday night football is the 
second game they're playing in five days in a brutal sport like football where even we've seen playing once a week for 16 weeks, what that does to human heads, it just puts too much of a toll on bodies too. Just the wear and tear, you got to have a hyper practice cycle in four weeks, you don't have enough time to recover. It really is terrible for the players and also for the league because more of your stars get injured just like, you know, Richard Sherman. However, unfortunately, Thursday Night Football really isn't going anywhere. CBS and NBC paid a combined $450 million for each of the next two years for rights to play Thursday Night Football. And the fact that there were two huge networks competing for this deal shows that demand for Thursday Night Football is there. The numbers are in. It's one of the few nationally televised games all week. The emergence of fantasy football means that even when sucky teams play, there's still an incentive for people to watch. Not only on the big screen also, but Amazon paid $15 million this year for streaming streaming rights, uh, ten million up from the $10 million that Twitter paid a few years back. So not only are prices high, prices are going up, not only on TV, but on streaming. And as more sources of places to watch Thursday Night Football come out, more and more companies are going to try to get on that bandwagon and get that extra money. Topic number three, and this one is a doozy. I might take 15 minutes. It's college football week 11. We're just a few weeks away from the college football playoff. Let's get to the scores. On Friday night, the craziness of Pac-12 after dark gave Stanford a 30-22 win over number 9 Washington. Number 24 LSU beat Arkansas 33-10. Nice recovery for them. In one of the big games that we're not going to cover this week, number 15 Oklahoma State beat number 21 Iowa State 49-42. Another big game, number 13 Ohio State beat number 12 Michigan State 48-3. Number 14 Penn State beat Rutgers 35-6, bouncing back. Number 23 NC State beat Boston College 17-14. Number 18 UCF, great mid-major, beat UConn 49-24. Number 17 Virginia Tech lost to Georgia Tech in a tight one 28-22. Number 8, Wisconsin handily beat number 20, Iowa, 38-14, another thing that's going to impact the race. Number 4, Clemson barely, kind of, uh, was closer than it looked, beat Florida State, 31-14. Number 11, beat Col- USC beat Colorado, 38-24. Number 19, Washington State beat Utah, 33-25. Number 2, Alabama beat number 16, Mississippi State barely, 31-24. Number 25, Northwestern beat Purdue, 23-13. And those are all the scores. And I think starting this week, I'm experimenting, of course, because, you know, it's the first time ever doing this. But I think we're going to have to say all the scores from here on out because some of these games are just so important you can't miss them. But let's get on to the really big games. They're so important that I actually wrote them down. Number 10, Auburn Ooh, beat Georgia 40-17. to In this game, Georgia's two-pronged rushing attack that was looking really good prior to this game of Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle was stifled by Auburn's defense as the team only had 46 total yards rushing. And Auburn had a balanced attack, meanwhile, with over 200 yards passing and rushing each. And they actually scored 30 consecutive points in quarters 1 through 3. And with this win, Auburn, despite having two losses, actually manages to stay in the playoff hunt. Because this is an interesting thought experiment. If Auburn runs the table, they would be by far the best two-loss team, really in the history of the playoff, maybe the history of ever. Because they would have to beat, at the time, undefeated and number one Georgia team, a probably undefeated Alabama team in the Iron Bowl, and then they would need to beat Georgia again in the SEC championship game, and their only losses would be to Clemson, who's probably going to make the playoff, and LSU, who, despite having a rough start, is coming in, is really coming into their own this year. So that's a pretty good resume, for a two, even for a two-loss team, if you ask me. And as far as Georgia, this is a really rough week for them. Because their other quality win, which was Notre Dame, was blown out at Miami. And, of course, when your opponent 
loses that makes it look worse on you. And their other good opponent, Mississippi State, they did come close. It is a good loss for Mississippi State coming close to beating Alabama, but it really would have helped Georgia if Mississippi State had kind of climbed that hill and beaten Alabama and probably moved into the top 10. So it's kind of a little bit of a brutal ending for Georgia. It's hard to see them making the playoff at this point, honestly, because they're going to have a tough matchup in the SEC championship game. And we did actually call this when I gave my predictions a few weeks ago. I really thought Georgia was going to lose to this Auburn team and then lose again in the SEC championship game. So Georgia still, of course, has got a shot. and They should be pretty high in this week's rankings, but I don't think they're making the playoff. As far as the second game goes, we have number seven, Miami, beating number three, Notre Dame, in a blowout, 41-8. to This was a story of offense, Notre Dame offense, that really struggled. They had six drives of three plays or less, and out of their other six drives, they had two interceptions and one fumble. So you got 12 drives, three plays or less, three, uh, three turnovers. You cannot win if you have that horrid of an offense. And Miami stalled all their momentum anyway, because at the end of the half, George, or, um, Notre Dame was down 20 to nothing, which is not insurmountable, especially with a half to go in college football. And they're marching down the field, and then a pick six, and now it's 27 nothing, and your momentum is gone, the crowd's back into it, and you just it's really hard to recover from that. And as far as Notre Dame's playoff hopes, they suffered a similar fate we talked to as Georgia, with their quality win being blown out, with Georgia being blown out. And as far as being a two-loss team to get in, they've not a good, not as good of a resume as a two-loss Auburn, so they're not getting in anymore. And I guess it's good to step back from the big picture because even though they're not making the playoff this year, it's it's really good that they've been able to bring this program back from the dead almost from last year's four and eight record. New quarterback in Brandon Wimbush and a new system. They're back in the playoff hunt and they're back to being relevant again. And yeah, what a spectacle this Miami Notre Dame game was. We kind of t- everyone was kind of talking about it all week, and we knew this was one that we were going to end up covering no matter how the score went, even if it was a horrible game. And then Miami, they kind of proved themselves on the national stage because before the last couple weeks, beating Virginia Tech, who did lose this week, so that makes it a worse win, and Notre Dame, we weren't really sure how good this Miami team was being in the ACC and not necessarily the strongest part of the ACC, like they don't have to go through Clemson. It really showed that endurance of getting through both of these tough teams that they need to be in the playoff. Now, as far as going forward, they should be able to cruise through their last two games against Virginia and Pittsburgh. And the ACC championship game that would set up is, or that has been set up actually, they've both clinched their respective divisions is Miami er, and Clemson, and that's probably going to be for a playoff spot with Clemson probably winning out and Miami probably winning out. And that would be on December 2nd, so set your calendars, people. Playoff spot will be determined in the ACC championship game. I'm making predictions today. Next, we've got number 5 Oklahoma beating number 6 TCU, 38-20. to Oklahoma really put the stranglehold on early in this game. It was 38-14 to at half. And even though they didn't score in the second half, they only gave up six points, and that's perfectly fine. For Oklahoma, Rodney Anderson had four total touchdowns with two rushing, two receiving, and he had 290 total yards, something you only get in college football, people. That would be, what, like 51 fantasy points? As you can see, I'm really thinking about fantasy this week. But TCU, they've still got a shot to win the Big 12 despite the loss because they own the tiebreaker against Oklahoma State and West Virginia, who had the same amount of losses as them. But playoff hopes... Nah. New Year's Six, probably, maybe, 
Um, but the playoff, two losses for them is too much to to uh, overcome, and you just can't do that, especially with a team like Auburn in there. And this really shows how fast a year can end, because we saw this with Penn State, where they lost two games in a row, they're out of the playoffs. TCU, they've lost two games in three weeks to Iowa State and Oklahoma, and now they're out of the playoff, which really sucks. But Oklahoma is in prime playoff position now, and Baker Mayfield is in prime Heisman position. He threw for 333 yards and three touchdowns in this game. And Oklahoma, for them, they're probably going to jump Notre Dame. This college football playoff rankings, probably Georgia as well, putting them in third. And their only test left this season is TC or is uh, West Virginia in two weeks, and then probably a rematch with TCU in the championship game. So Oklahoma, with that one loss, they're kind of treading on thin ice, but I like them to make the college football playoff at this point. Okay, next, 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 we've had the NFL Week 10. The Falcons, we're going to start with this game, beat the Cowboys 27-7. to Dallas really struggled offensively in both the first game since the suspension of Ezekiel Elliott and due to the injury of their left tackle, Tyron Smith. As a result, coming on the blind side, the Falcons' Adrian Claiborne set a team record with six sacks and may have tied an NFL record. And after scoring a touchdown with six minutes and 19 seconds left in the first quarter, the Cowboys were shut out. Now, why is that? Well, for starters, there was really no primary back that emerged for the Cowboys. Even though Alfred Morris had the most carries by far of 11, without the support of that line, the full support, he only had 53 yards, which is not a horrible yards per carry, but you kind of expect a breakout run, and no scores. And other rushers that were not named Dak Prescott, who actually himself scored the team's only rushing touchdown, had four rushes for 12 yards and no TDs. And Darren McFadden, who was supposedly the second back, actually had negative yards. Ezekiel Elliott, this really shows how much he impacts the game, not only with the running game, but with the passing game, because the biggest game for a wide receiver for a cowboy in this game was Jason Witten, and he had seven receptions for 59 yards. So he's not getting the targets out there, he's not spreading out the ball, he's not able to set up the pass with the play action by drawing the linebackers in and giving more room for those uh, inside rece- the slot receivers to work as well as the outside receivers. This may have been an off game for a Cowboys team that it's. I'm not sure how they're going to do without Ezekiel Elliott. I don't really like them if they don't have Ezekiel Elliott because he just provides so much to their offense, but we'll see. As far as the Falcons, there's not too much to say about them because this was kind of a game against a weak opponent that's trying to find their footing without Zeke. But they stay in their division, which is a really stacked division. They're two games behind the New Orleans Saints, and they're now a game and a half behind the Carolina Panthers, who look dominant. Both of them look dominant this week in Week 10. And it's going to be hard for them because they play the New Orleans Saints and the Carolina Panthers in three of the last four weeks. So this is going to be a tough, that's going to be a tough stretch for the Falcons. But they've shown that they have the offense and potentially the defense to stifle these really good offenses. The second game, the Saints blew out the Bills 47-10. to The Saints running game dominated throughout this game. They had almost 300 yards, which is uh, pretty remarkable in the NFL. We just got done talking about college. But in the NFL, it's tough to get that many yards against a pro team. LaShawn McCoy was a key part for the Saints because he was kept in check this entire game, having only 60 total yards, and he never found pay dirt. The Saints, meanwhile, are developing a really complete offense. 
Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara both had at least six yards uh, per rush, at least 100 yards rushing, and at least one touchdown. And I've heard people say that this is like a lightning-thunder dynamic, matching kind of the Reggie Bush-Lindell-White duo at USC, where you've got the speed back and the power back, the guy who can get you big chunks, and then the guy at the goal line who's just going to pound it in. But I think they're both more versatile than that, because they both have had to play different roles, especially Mark Ingram, who was, who's been the primary back for years and years. We, we, it's not like we see, uh, we see Kamara in on first and second down, and then Ingram just comes in on third and one. We see Ingram on first down. We see Kamara at the goal line. Even though it's mostly pitches, we still see him there. It's not like they're one-dimensional when they get to the red zone. So that's going to be really tough for defenses to stop when you don't know what's coming, when you have different guys who can provide different skills, a different skill set, but you don't know when they're going to get when you're going to get them. Meanwhile, in the passing game, even though they didn't throw a passing touchdown, which usually is used as a measure, kind of like titles, not overall skills as far as teams, Michael Thomas was targeted 10 times for 9 receptions, 117 yards, and other receivers had good games. So it's not like they were totally one-dimensional, and it's not like they needed to get off the run anyway. When you get 300 yards, you don't need to prove that you can pass, except for fantasy. But anyway, now the Saints have won seven in a row because of how good their offense is and how good their defense has managed to be, and they now lead the and they still lead the division. That tough NFC that's turning out to be a tough NFC South. The Bills, meanwhile, stay barely on the edge of the playoff hunt. They're going to need get to get back to their run game though if they want to compete for a playoff spot they've only had 132 rushing yards in their last two games combined and the team is kind of built on rushing and this is a home game so this is a game you expect them to pound the saints but their wide receiver one is kelvin benjamin so and they just recently acquired him and he's still integrating into the offense so it's not like you have a big passing attack you can fall back on if your running backs are short they do have a uh should they should win this game against the Chargers coming up before they have a big matchup with the Kansas City Chiefs ahead. Okay, now on to fan questions. So let me give a little bit of a preface to this first one. This is from Evan. Uh, I run a fantasy football league, and I, I thought of this idea as like, what if you had the people who didn't make the playoffs when you're betting and stuff, you had them fill out a bracket of your, your, of your league's playoffs, not the NFL playoffs, but your league's playoffs, and the person who fills out a bracket the best gets their money back. Feel free to steal that idea. I, I think it's pretty cool. I don't know. That's just me, though. Um, so anyway, here's my picks for our league's bracket. And some of these names I don't feel like saying, but here we go. Uh, the first one in the first round matchup to play the one seed, I have Anal beating Kilp. In the second matchup, I have KMD beating NS. In the second round, I have SODN over Anal. To advance to the final, and then the bottom half, I have KMD over Yi to advance to the final, and in the final, I have SODN over KMD to win the final. So if that's what you were wondering, that's what you got. And on to the next question that probably applies to more people. Is CJ Beathard the future of the 49ers? This is from Jason, who clearly likes CJ Beathard. And I believe the answer is no. Not, I might not have said that a few weeks ago, but now I do, because you really don't get a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo if you're not trying to start him. You, even though people are saying this is a good deal for the Niners, you still had to give away a few draft picks. It's not like you got him for free. So you kind of have to do something with him now, and that means I think C.J. Beathard, unless he really shows something, is not the future of the 49ers. But what C.J. can do, I like, I like him. He got the Niners' his first win, so I mean, doesn't that mean something? 
But what he can do is raise his value in San Francisco and get a deal somewhere else, almost to the extent Garoppolo did, where he sat behind Brady for so long, he sat in that system, and now he's gotten a big deal from the Niners. So I don't think C.J. Beathard is the future of the Niners, but I think he could be the future of some other team somewhere else. Now let's get to the quick take. Boy, this would be a bombshell if it landed. Giancarlo Stanton trade rumors. The Dodgers are in the mix, quote, for the Marlins star. Wow, what a big deal this would be. So background, of course, Giancarlo Stanton, the slugger for the Miami Marlins, who hits homers like 650 feet. That's an exaggeration, but not by much. Uh, He won the Home Run Derby a few years ago, I think, and now he's one of the biggest free agents or that is coming up in this fall in this falling postseason. And a lot of teams are going after him. The Red Sox, the Cardinals, the Giants, the Dodgers. And if the Dodgers, who are just fresh off a Game 7 World Series loss, they were to get this guy, in, and they can with their payroll because they've got such a big payroll because they're in such a big market, and this is a star-heavy market, so he would fit really perfectly in Los Angeles. I, I don't know how the Dodgers could get any much better if they landed him. I mean... I don't know who he would be replacing, but he, he's pretty much a replacement over anyone, and they have so much talent there. They can move him. They can move that talent in a deal and get more young talent back to develop another star. They have enough assets to trade with another team. Oh, yeah, and sorry, I misspoke a little earlier. He's not actually a free agent, but honestly, the way he's being shopped around, it kind of sounds like he is. But anyway, he's owed, uh, according to this article, $295 million by the Marlins. So any team that's going to take him is going to have to take his ginormous payroll, but hey, it's the Dodgers, they can do that. I don't like this move for the Dodgers just because it's so much money, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do anyway, because they're the Dodgers, and I don't like the Dodgers, but they're really good, and whatever. Uh, Thanks for checking out the show. Send questions, of course, on the Patreon patron feed, or do it to our email. You can do that also via the website, Check out the links. The website is bit.ly slash the long takes. I'm moving all my advertisement over there because I just like it so much better because it's so much shorter and it's so much easier to memorize. The Patreon, patreon.com slash the long takes. Don't forget to check it out. You can get exclusive stuff like outlines for the episode that I'm actually looking at right now. And also check out the email, the long takes at gmail.com. You can send questions, comments, concerns, do whatever you want. And I will see you next week.